So I I don't see gig work becoming a, um, a real thing within the contact center environment. If anything, I think the, the robots will take away the transactional low-end work um, as um, as the robots and the chatbots get better and the voice bots get better as self-serve capabilities get better all the, all, all the things that perhaps the you know the gig workers um, would would do um, can can mostly be automated so that then leaves the humans to do the things that the robots can't do which tends to be the more complex work the more emotional work the more challenging work and that then in turn you know that, that that's that's why I have this thesis about um, the progression of the contact center career and why it's really important for contact centers to become careers and for contact centers to offer their people proper career pathways and career progressions because um, more and more we're asking more of the people that work for contact centers it's not something that you can do just sort of coming here you, know, you can't just parachute into an organization because more and more the humans in the contact center are dealing with those queries that you need training you need expertise you need knowledge of the organization you need to know who to to, to to talk to internally to help get the answer to the question you need emotional yeah. intelligence as well you need empathy for the customer you need not just hard skills i.e product knowledge organizational knowledge you need soft skills you need people skills i think that's going to be one of the most exciting trends is um you know i i really think about it like a new economy like there's just a whole new tier of the economy that's about to boom that is booming that started booming during covid and you know that is uh the like e economy um, what happens when the way that you interact with a company, the way you buy products and services, the way you get your questions answered, the way you get them maintained and installed, you know, are um, through contact center actions and digital interactions. Um, and I think that we're going to see that, you know, folks are going to realize that the folks in the contact center, and they're starting to feel this way, are the business's lifeline to the market. Whereas previously, uh, that was like almost the place that you had to route customers when things weren't working. But now it's like the lifeline. I think that it's the appreciation for what the contact center space is doing. Um, honestly, I think just like skyrocketed in 2020. I agree wholeheartedly. And it's backed up by the, the work that we've done at the CCMA and the conversations we've had at the CCMA um, further accelerated through COVID and as other ways of interacting with organizations have become more constrained, the contact center has risen to the front and center and has become the front line of the organization. And um, contact centers are no, they're not just doing downstream customer service, post-purchase types of journeys anymore. Contact centers are more and more involved in sales. They're more and more involved in marketing. They're more and more involved in strategic functions of the organization. But I just wanted to, to come back to, to um, remote working, which, you know, I'd be glad to talk more about because I'm fascinated by the whole idea of sort of the new way of working. I think a gig economy can mean different things. What I don't think is going to happen is that sort of gig economy definition of like a temporary sort of part-time mm -hmm. um, transactional type of worker, you know, the sort of the low-skilled worker who sort of is, is is just there to you know as a, as a, a, a as a warm body on in a seat i don't think that's the sort of thing that's going to take root in content centers what i do think is interesting and it's it's um also visible and it's going to be more of a thing in the wider working environment both outside as well as inside contact centers is a couple of things this this ability to 
um, time shift and place shift. Now, content centers, maybe not so much time shifting, but already having said that, what we are seeing is that flexible hybrid remote working is actually in some ways making it easier to fill shifts. So um, historically, at least in the UK, the 6 to 10 p.m. shift was always, you know, the one that everyone wanted to avoid. Everyone hates mm -hmm. the 6 to 10 p.m. shift. Um, but now, if you're working from home, you don't have a commute to worry about. And if you're a parent, 6 to 10 p.m. makes a lot of sense because you can look after your kids, you can you can settle the kids down and then do a shift in the evening when they're settled down or even in bed. That makes an awful lot of sense. Um, and, you know, that that is what we're hearing is you know, that the, the graveyard shift, the evening shift is becoming much easier to... Um, to resource now. That's one example. The place shifting is fascinating to me. The idea of um, how offices are not just now places to work, but places to socialize, places to collaborate. And that's obviously not just restricted to contact centers, but it is very much a reality, I think, in contact centers where a lot of the day-to-day the -day work now doesn't have to happen in the office. Mm -hmm. But the office still has and in, in some ways actually has a more focused purpose now the office is going to be a place where you interact with people your colleagues other uh, other you know uh, uh, other team members uh, in and out of your in and out of the contact center where you share ideas you might want to spend you know, two days in the office or three days in the office and the other two or three days at home mm -hmm. i think that's really interesting something else which we're starting to explore which i i think it's it's not here yet and we, it remains to be seen how much it will establish itself within the contact center industry. But this idea of actually working from, not from home and not from the office, but from co-working spaces, from coffee shops, that is just not a thing in contact centers. And I think if you do a lot of telephony based work, if you do a lot of voice based work, if you deal with a lot of sensitive customer data, that's obviously going to be quite challenging to do from a WeWork or from a coffee shop. But mm -hmm. if you do, if you're doing mostly email, if you're doing mostly text-based digital channels, there's no reason why you couldn't do it from a third space. That's interesting. I think that's a frontier. And this idea of, you know, the idea of the road warrior, which is a segment that exists in a lot of sectors and a lot of industries, the, you know, the sales, the roving salesperson is a classic you know, um, example of that, the person who carries all of their equipment in their, in their bag and spend a lot of time traveling. Um, that could be a reality in the contact center, somebody who, who isn't tied to a place but, and doesn't rely on having, you know, the equipment in a fixed location. They bring their equipment with them and they work where they please. That's, mm -hmm. really, interesting. That's really interesting. The technology is totally there. Is there the cultural norms, at least at this moment, are there? Um, I, I did a podcast with one of um, our guests uh, a few months ago, and he recorded the podcast. He was taking it from the beach. He spotted oh, yeah. his camera around and said, Look, there's the waves, there's the sand. He took it from the beach. No um, Stephen, have you heard of uh, Crisp.ai, the company Crisp? I haven't. Cool. It's, uh, it's one of the cooler technologies I've seen. And it's like real true noise canceling, like filtering out background wow. noise. Um, and the way that they demo is, uh, you know, they put their money where their mouth is. They'll be sitting there tapping on the computer and making yeah. noise. And then they turn on crisp and you can't hear anything. <laughs> that makes the coffee shop possible. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have to look into that. Is that C, is that C or K crisp? It's with a K. It's with a K. Okay, I'm going to have to look into them. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I aspire to that. Um, I see myself as soon as travel 
becomes a possibility again i see myself I, i've always traveled a lot as you can yeah. see from my background it's, it's kind of built into my personal dna i see myself and i'm lucky as well personally i've sort of worked quite hard for it as well to get myself in a position where i can potentially work from in it wherever i don't have mm -hmm. to be physically in, in a place to do my job and yeah i can see myself working from the beach or from you know the other side of the world there's nothing that stops me from doing that and i think that's going to become more and more a reality for people they will be able to to be nomadic you know this idea of a digital nomad is a thing mm -hmm. people who who have laptop based jobs who can obviously it doesn't apply to everybody but there are increasingly um, whole classes of jobs where you can do that sort of work um, regardless of your physical location yeah you know, and that 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 it kind of blows my mind actually um, the possibilities if you think about you know what that means for individuals and also what it means for employers mm -hmm. it, it's so funny because right up until covid um, you know i think that the idea of the digital nomad had been starting to get bad press and have this uh like a little bit of like this cloud around it where people were saying, oh, those are the people who don't work well on a team, don't give a crap about looking involved and, and being physically connected. Those are the, the uh, um, shoot, what's the term that they use in sales? Um, those are the uh, lone wolves. Your digital nomads are the lone wolves. And then COVID hit. And I personally know two different people that traveled the country working out of a van, <laughs> you know? So I think that, that, uh, that, that, that lifestyle, which I think it was inevitable in some point, you know, gaining traction as uh, we have more tools and have more freedom and yeah. where we work. Um, but I think COVID uh, took it from a little bit disillusioned and people kind of skeptical and wary to something that people aspire to. And they say, good on you. You're living out your yes. dreams. That's awesome. Yes. yes. One of the, positive um, side effects of COVID has been the redefinition of certain norms, has been the, the busting of certain myths, and no more is that evident than, than the world of work and the world of the workplace. Um, you know, without COVID, I don't think, you know, COVID, uh, the, 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 you know I think it, it's, it's been done to death now, um, you know, it's been it's been said over and over again how much the pandemic has accelerated certain things. It's accelerated transformation, digital transformation. It's accelerated change. Um, but no more, you know, nowhere is that more evident than in attitudes. I think towards remote working, home working, mm -hmm. um, and I, I do think you know for all the damage and the pain that COVID has wrought, this will be one of the lasting positive effects. It's that it's it's made homeworking a reality and a viable reality for many individuals and many organizations that would have taken 20 30 years to achieve had mm -hmm. it not been for covid it doesn't yeah. suit everybody it doesn't suit everybody it seems to me that home working versus office working it's just you know in some ways it's become like the latest cultural war you know mm -hmm. like, are you for or are you against and you know and like so many things like almost any, everything it depends you know it's, it, it works for some organizations it doesn't work for others it works for some individuals it doesn't work for others but the fact that it's it's now an option and we're talking about it um is fantastic it's fantastic and um it's not it, it's it is very much the top uh, the the hot topic within contact centers i don't think the the idea of working from the beach or from coffee shops is yet a topic i think it will become a topic mm -hmm. but certainly pre-covid and that was only a year ago or a year and a bit ago 
the whole idea of working remotely in contact centers was for most contact centers pretty much unheard of. And now yeah. it's, it's, it's the permanent reality. When you talked about, you know, it being a reality or it, it might've uh, taken 20 or 30 years. Um, I think that there's a lot of truth to that because I think that what we would have seen is almost like a trickle down effect where the like, uh, w- most white collar workers with the highest paying jobs and the most options, those are the ones that get to work remote. And then it kind of filters and filters and filters. And we did see, un- unfortunately, some effect uh, there in COVID. And that, that was um, you know, definitely something that I think um, it shook um, our cultures and uh, made us evaluate how are we treating everybody in the world yeah. and are we providing appropriate levels of fairness? Because uh, we know we're not, and we need yeah. to get better. Um, but I, I also really do appreciate that the contact center world, for the most part, did go remote. And that's mm-hmm. millions of, of, of folks who are earning uh, you know, decent incomes um, in, in a lot of cases, in some cases, great incomes, uh, you know, but you know, certainly not the uh, Silicon Valley engineers. Um, and those folks got the freedom of the best lifestyle for them, too. And that's a really special thing. Yes. One of the things we, we, we talked a lot about um, this time last year was this idea of agility and how um, people surprised themselves, people in contact centers amazed themselves actually how they were able to quite quickly pivot to remote working, to kit out all of the, their teams, their colleagues, to be able to um, much quicker than they might have anticipated to, days. to, to maintain business contribution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Seriously, days. They did it in days. days. A few, a few organizations had anticipated it, starting putting plans in place. A few really forward-looking organizations already had remote working policies, but the majority of them, at least in the UK, um, hadn't planned and were forced into it. And you know what? You can do amazing things when, you're, when, you're, when you don't have a choice. And in days, they were set up. And yes, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect, and it still isn't perfect. But it happened, and yes, waiting times went up. But um, by and large, most contact centers were able to maintain service and business yeah. continuity. And that idea of we can do it when we need to, that agility, you know, that, that we can be agile when we need to. I think it's interesting. It will be interesting to see whether or not that 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 remains mm-hmm. post, you know, as lockdown is easing, certainly in the UK. Um, whether things culturally go back to normal or whether actually some of that sense of action, you know, we can be, we can be quick and we can be disruptive and we can be innovative, whether that stays. I, I think there's, there's a point I want to make though, which is also important. And I, you won't find a bigger advocate of remote working than me. I am the world's biggest advocate of remote working. I, I, I've been working from home for, for a while now, so, you know, well, since well before COVID. I am- How long? Um, uh well i would say since i've been working for myself for sure that was one of the reasons that, to work for yeah. myself but even then even when i had a salary job I, I was lucky enough to work for some quite understanding employers who allowed me to spend you know reasonable amount of time at home i would have spent more if they'd allowed me um mm-hmm. and i'm one of those who loves it not everybody does um but i am one of those who loves it and i'm one of those who once the opportunity arises will be in, i will be a digital nomad there's no question mm-hmm. about it You'll find me. You'll probably find me somewhere in Thailand during the during the winter months. <laughs> um, so, I have a cousin you know, in Thailand. Oh, yeah, she absolutely yeah. loves it. She uh, originally went, uh, you know, just as a vacation, 
and then uh, found uh, her Thailand sweetheart and fell in love there. Uh, nice. And, um, you know, they both spoke different languages. So, she, you know, yeah. uh, she didn't speak any of the, the local language. Uh, he didn't speak English. Um, but they just had this bond. And now uh, she's been there for probably 10, 15 years, raise a family. Um, uh, so really, really special thing. What a great story. Place. What a yeah. great story. What a great story. I'm not sure what the climate is like in St. Louis, but um, in, not Thailand. <laughs> in the UK, yeah. November through February isn't too good. It's not yeah. too good. It's not just the cold. It's just dark. It's just dark. Mm. Um, so yeah, as soon as I can, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in Southeast Asia and I'll be doing my job, you know, as normal, cause I can do my job and yeah, I'll probably need to do some calls at odd hours, but Hey, you know, it'll be, it's all good. Um, so I am a huge advocate for, for remote working, but I also know that you can't always give complete freedom of choice to your staff. You know, that's just not a reality. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, for some people, the job content doesn't actually suit home. The job content requires you to deal with situations where you need to be in the office because you need access to people, you need resources. Maybe you deal with sensitive customer data, which the organization rightly doesn't want, doesn't want going over to public Wi-Fi. And even, you know, you might have a reasonable VPN, but it's, you know, it's not, if you, it's not necessarily um, secure enough. Um, so there needs to be a big, be a, a bit of give and take. Um, the, the, the employee should absolutely be given some decision making, but the organization also needs to have some liberty to make its decisions based on what's best for the organization. There is that balance that needs yeah. to be struck between the needs of the individual and the needs of the organization. And there is also, I think, for many organizations, there's a truth that there is value in that community, that physical community. So if I think about some of the things that I've seen consistently over my work, um, and this isn't new news, if you look at any survey about attitudes to remote working, typically um, younger people have a stronger preference to be in the office and older people typically have a stronger preference to work remotely. And huh. there's many reasons for that. Actually, what are those reasons? Because I, well, I, that kind of strikes me as a little bit counterintuitive. I, I, I kind of understand it, but at the same time, you'd say, uh, the younger folks grew up with a digital lifestyle. And, uh, of course they'd be the ones who they're used to one click getting everything they want. So cool. of course they would be the ones who would yeah. be remote. Well, there's a, there's a number of good reasons for that. Yeah. Um, as an older person, you've probably grown up, um, working in the office and now, you know, you look forward to the alternative options and the freedoms of, of, um, working at home or remotely and not having to deal with commute, you might well have child commitments where it's, you know, you have the flexibility if you're at home that you don't have, if you need to do a, a commute to the office every single day. I think even more importantly, um, offices aren't just places to do work. Offices are places to interact, to socialize, to meet people, to talk to people. How many people meet, meet friends, life partners, in the office, if you're married and you know my age, then that's not really a thing for you anymore. <laughs> but if you're you know your age, <laughs> Mark, you know if you're mm -hmm. in your twenties and um, you, you're still at the peak of your you know your your social powers, then actually the office is a really important place to socialize. And there's re plenty of research, both within contact centers and outside of contact centers, that backs that up. 
I think the most important reason to call out though here is that actually offices are places to work, uh, not to work, excuse me, to learn, to, to observe how other people work and to learn from other people. I can certainly say, and I think many people who, who spent a good chunk of their early careers in offices would, would agree, you learn so much just by being around other people. If, you know, 20 years ago when I was starting my career, I learned so much just by being around seniors and seeing how they worked and learning, at, you know, alongside them. It's so much harder to do that if you're not in the office. If you're trying mm -hmm. to do your job at home by yourself, and yes, you, we've all got messaging platforms and we've all got various communication tools. It's just not the same that, uh, compared to if you're if you if you're you know if you're next to people and you're learning by watching them. And it's one you know it's great now. Twenty years on, I've, I'm pretty much you know I'm pretty much settled. I've, I've you know I've, I'm always learning, but I've pretty much developed the skills that I need. It's one thing, and I, you know, I was lucky to do that in, the, in, in offices, but if I'm starting out my career now, how do I learn? The and way you learn changes, you know, because uh, when you're uh, early on, I think that learning by watching um, others is one of the most valuable sources of information, uh, which obviously is, is gone during the remote work environment. Um, but I think that as you advance in your career, the way that you learn is, is more learning by self-observation um, and by almost making targeted plans of where you see your strengths and weaknesses. And, yeah. uh, and it, it's, it's much more of an autonomous um, type of learning, whereas in the beginning, it's just it's absorb, absorb, absorb as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. Um... I think it's going to be fascinating to see how so many things will change and the nature of learning and the nature of career development, the nature of progression will change. Mm -hmm. uh, and if all of the seniors, because, you know, they're, as we know, older people do generally speaking, have a stronger preference for remote working. If all the directors, all the seniors, all the, all the leaders are now working, working remotely and then they're no longer in the office, who do you learn from? You know, and how do you learn in that new environment? As you say, is it more is it more about self actualization? Yeah, I think that that that's a really interesting topic. So, I think I think as always, there's no simple, easy, right answer to to remote working. I think one thing that we can all be grateful for, though for is that we now have options. Before mm -hmm. we had less options, and now we have more options. Yeah, Stephen, you highlighted pretty perfectly. Um, a, a a pretty deep concern I have about the future of what the office will look like. Uh, you know, we at, at Balto did a survey where we asked folks, you know, uh, great, we have the ability to go back to the office and we're trying to choose the best office space for the company. Uh, how many times do you think you want to be in the office any given week? Um, and the most common answers were one to two times. So uh, how do you you know, when the whole point of being in the office is to have the like chance interactions and the, and the yeah. big group of people that, that you can meet. And, you know, if you go in the office, there's an 80% chance that the person that you wanted to talk to isn't there, then it's a pretty strong disincentive to be at the office. If it's this like random grab bag of uh, people that that may be there and are only at twenty percent capacity at any given time, I think it's going to be a real challenge for making the office a productive workplace that we're going to see in the next few years. That is so true, Mark. One of the biggest questions here in the UK 
within the contact center leader community is um, how do we continue to ensure our offices are vibrant places to work? Mm-hmm. They're never going to be the same again. Let, make, let's make no mistake. Offices will not be the same again. Um, and in fact, is there a risk that the office will die, die a slow death? Because you're absolutely right. The whole point of offices is running, you know, running into people in those corridors, in the water coolers, those serendipitous moments behind, you know, next to the coffee machine, those random conversations. That's what offices, that's what offices, you know, really do over and above just being places where people do work because we can do any work anywhere now. But then if 80% of the people aren't in the offices, you're not going to have those serendipitous moments. And if, if you're going to plan time with people, then you know, you don't need to be in an office to have a planned session with somebody. You can do that over Zoom like we're doing now. Yep. So I think the answer, I think the answer might be coming back to what I was saying earlier about the organization does perhaps need to set some boundaries and perhaps the organization does need to say, actually, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays, you need to be in the office. Yeah. Um, because it's really important we have people together because it's really important that we continue to have those serendipitous conversations because we know that that's where a lot of value is created. Um, but do you know what? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, up to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, you've uh, visited contact centers all over the world, uh, Hong Kong, China, the UK, Canada. Um, what are a couple of the aspects of contact center culture that you've noticed in you know, some of the places that to our U.S. listeners uh, might call international. Um, you know, what are some of the bits of international culture that you think the, the U.S. might do well to apply to our contact center culture? That was a great question. I, I should probably qualify that by saying I haven't actually spent that much time in the contact centers specifically outside of the UK. So my contact center yeah. work has been quite UK focused, mm-hmm. but I do have broader experience of just doing business. Sure. Um, in, a, in a number of different markets. Um, I think, I think firstly, it's, I should say things are more similar than they are different. I think it, you know, it's quite, uh, it, it's natural to sort of focus on differences, but it, it, mm-hmm. it, the reality is, um, the dynamics are probably more recognizable than they are unrecognizable. If you're a contact center person and you were to suddenly be transplanted um, into, a, 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 you know, the equivalent in another part of the world, there's a lot of it that you would recognize. There's an awful amount that you would recognize in terms of process, in terms of culture. Um, I think that um, in East Asia, typically uh, business culture tends to be how should I say? Um, I think I think contact centers everywhere in the world are, are naturally quite process driven, but um, there is in the UK um, more and more scope for individuals, and I think this is a broader cultural thing as well. It's not just contact centers; it's not even just business. I think it, it comes down to culture. So I'll try to answer this through the lens of broader culture. Mm-hmm. I think the needs of the individual take a bigger priority than uh, in, in places like the UK than they do in East Asia. I can't really speak for the US. I don't have so much experience over the US context center culture. Um, I don't mean to say that's a negative thing outside of the UK either. I think, you know, it's uh, depends on how you see things. I, I think that um, it's, 
uh, as a leader, it can be more challenging if you've got a lot of challenging individuals who will speak their mind and have their own preferences and expect to be listened to. That can be really challenging. Whereas in Asia, people, and I'm making huge generalizations, people just tend to obey. They tend to fall into line. They don't tend to question things quite as much, which has its pros and cons has its pros and cons. It certainly has its pros when it comes to, you know, to managing resources. Um, it, it has its pros when it comes to getting things done. It has its pros when it comes to managing change because people tend to move more accepting of change. I think mm-hmm. there is a, there is an openness to change and there is a, an openness to innovation perhaps in places like Hong Kong and Singapore that doesn't, doesn't exist to the same extent in, in the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. I think in Europe and North America, there tends to be a greater level of resistance to change because people to get comfortable in the way that things are done and they don't tend to like think you know when, when new things are presented to them whereas in asia people are quite open mm-hmm. to new things whether it's new processes or new technologies or new people even that's so interesting because you know when you think of um and I, you know the the us right now is we are trying to define our national identity again um uh, and it's obviously an impossible task because there's so many identities and we're so split on so many things. Um, but the thing that at least historically, you know, uh, seemed to, to, uh, you know, bind us was, um, you know, of, of course, like, you know, freedom, but also the, the concept of, uh, innovation and risk-taking, um, so the U.S. culture, I think we think of ourselves as as innovators and risk takers. Uh, but so interesting that that you mentioned that in some ways, uh, you know, the U.S. and U.K. culture might actually be less open minded uh, in the business world to innovation than you might see in East Asia. I, I yeah, I think that's true. I think that. Um the that change and openness to new things is or or, or not questioning new things is something that is that certainly in my experience particularly visible in places like hong kong and singapore because these are places that are massively commercial these are places that have always thrived on on change and technology and innovation and um, they're the lifeblood of those places In, in comparison if you look at places like the uk and the us you have just generally culturally, politically, um, a greater de- deal of what I would call tradition, you know, conservatism mm-hmm. uh, in the outlook. Something else that, that actually occurred to me while, um, you know, while, while we were talking is, is just customer service in general. Um, and this, here I draw a distinction between the UK, I think the UK and Europe are pretty more similar to each other, but it's definitely different to Asia, it's definitely different to, to the US. Um, Customer service and sort of the expectation as custom, as a customer of getting service, as well as of a professional ah. to provide service, is much stronger in the US than it is in the UK, and it's much stronger in Asia than it is in the UK. So, whichever context you're in, if you're in a store or if you're on, you know, calling a hotline, um, the general standard of service tends to be better if you're um, in America or in Hong Kong. It is here in the UK. Very interesting. Um, I think uh, it ma- makes me think of this documentary uh, that I saw. I think it was on Netflix called American Factory. H- have you seen that by any chance? I haven't, no. I think it's called American Factory. And basically what it is, is it highlights 
um, this factory in the U.S. and and they make, um, I believe, like windshields. Um, and the fact that the U.S. is bought by a Chinese company, yeah. and they are highlighting what the you know, the Chinese company is trying to understand, they're trying to you know, respect and preserve the American culture, but also bring over best practices from the Chinese culture. And they have the, uh, you know, American management fly to China to see how they do things. And what was so uh, interesting about that documentary is it didn't frame it as this is the better one, this is the worst one. Like the documentary showed like these are two just different ways of doing work yeah, and yeah. both of them have pros and cons. And um, in order to be competitive, we're going to need to continue to learn from each other. Um, and I, I think that's where, you know, the world is, is, is trending too. I think I'm going to have to check out uh, American factory. It was incredible. Yeah, I am. Um usually a, uh, an advocate of cultural relativism and um, I'm one of those people who don't believe in absolutes and you know there's no, no rights of wrong any shades of gray and you need to look at everything in its own context um, but hey customer service in the UK is not nearly as good as it is in the US or in Hong Kong or Singapore and for me I think there's a there's a correlation with just generally attitudes towards work you know, Americans, Hong Kong, Chinese, Singaporeans, um, it's all about work. It's about the work ethic, you know, people, people, yeah, and, and working hard to, to get ahead is all baked into the DNA, you know, in, in, in the US. It's baked into, absolutely baked into the DNA in Hong Kong and it's baked into the DNA in Singapore. In, in, in the UK, it's much more, um, it's not so much live to work, it's work to live. Mm -hmm. I think you see that playing out in customer service. Why should I, why should I go the extra mile for you? It's just a job. It doesn't even pay that much. Mm. Yeah. It's, that's really fascinating. Um, so Steven, you're, I noticed that you're the research director of three different organizations, uh, call center management association, InsureTech insights and platform 195. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your research? What's got you most excited right now? Wow. Have we got another hour for the podcast, Mark? <laughs> we could. Um, so coming back to, to just, if I can touch on sort of an earlier point about the future of work. So I'm, I, I, I'm absolutely blessed and fortunate because I've managed to find myself in a situation where I'm working for a, a portfolio of amazing organizations who are doing incredible work all in areas, territories that I find personally fascinating and love to be involved in. I've always enjoyed customer experience. I've got a background in doing customer experience work at the CCMA. What I love and the whole, I'm actually relatively new to contact centers. Um, I've never worked in a contact center. Um, I've got more of a CX research background, voice of customer background. And it was only really in the last year or so that I've really closely started closely being involved, but Hey, you know, contact centers are the front line. They are the, the absolute, as we say in the UK, the cold face is when the hub, rubber hits the road. And it's just, it's just a fascinating place to be the stories, you know, where the, from the front line is, is how I see my role within the CCMA. And I also think that um, I've got a couple of thoughts about just generally the contact center world. I think one is um, it deserves more airplane. It, it deserves more recognition. I think there is a, a, yes. a public perception that contact centers are quite low end, low skilled work. And, you know, you can understand why that is. 
um, still a lot of jobs and a lot of people do contact center work in between jobs. It's not a career, but that's changing. Um, it's becoming more skilled. It's becoming more aspirational over time. It's going to become more better, well, you know, more paid. It's going to become more of a career and contact center people. And this, this, my eyes have been opened so wide since coming in, working for the CCNA, talking to all kinds of people all the way from, from, you know, it's um, global directors down to down to advisors. You know, the 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 caliber of people is 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 astonishing, and their the agreeableness, if I can use a term, of people and the willingness to help. You know, it's something that's really baked into customer facing people's DNA. Just people are so incredibly willing to help and be helpful and be agreeable. It's such a pleasure to work with people in this industry. Um, the second point about contact center and CX work is um, I felt that there wasn't, or, or should I say there, there was a gap or an opportunity to deliver more insight and better quality insight into this, mm-hmm. um, in, in this into this area. I felt that I, I saw a lot of stuff out there and, and there's a huge amount of stuff, um, research, there's a lot of content marketing that leverages research. I mean, that's what I do. I do essentially content marketing that that is based on research. But um, a lot of it is, I'm trying to pick my words carefully, perhaps not as robust as, you know, as one would ideally like. So I felt there was an opportunity to deliver some really high quality research, leveraging my research background, like, you know, actually, you know, career researcher, 20 plus years in research and bring that to the content center sector to really uncover what's going on and really tell those stories that are happening within the industry so that you know that's the ccma piece and i um you know i i, I feel so fortunate to to uh, be part of that organization and to work get to work with you know the amazing people in the contact center sector introtech insights is um also an incredible opportunity and one that I'm really privileged to be a part of they are a startup organization based out of London but their staff is international and they've got people all over the world they're they're essentially uh, an organization they are a community of um, 170,000 insurance professionals with all of whom have got an interest in innovation I've always personally been so I've got a, a, a lot of experience working technology uh, started my career doing B2B IT, which is actually not that interesting. Um, then did a lot of consumer IT. Then I did a lot, lot of mobile telephony, mobile phones work. Um, so I've always worked a lot in tech. And I realized that actually what interests me and excites me personally is um, working in areas where there's a lot of technological change. Contact centers, definitely. Um, but also insurance. Insurance is on one level dull as ditch water. It's the most boring category in the world. On another level, it is genuinely one of the most interesting categories ever. It really is. If you look at the change and the disruption that's happening, and then if you strip it all down, strip it all back, insurance, as dry and technical as insurance can be, insurance is actually the most human of businesses. It's one of the oldest categories in human history. It really is. And it's, uh, it's funny. I think it's the uh, second oldest profession first being <laughs> rock <laughs> gathering. Up. I'm not going to say that on a family <laughs> yeah. podcast. Yeah. Listeners look that one up on Google. I'm not yeah. Gonna tell you. What's the oldest, oldest profession. 
We'll, we'll leave uh, that one for insurance offline. Is, yeah. Insurance is the second oldest profession, but it really is, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's all about it's about human frailty. It's about one's desire to protect oneself and one's family from nasty things that can happen in life. It's fascinating. The human the human side of insurance interests me, and yeah, I guess Look back it, to the to the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament where. Uh, and I'm going to get this hopefully not too wrong, where um, like Joseph is advising the Pharaoh to have seven years of grain in case there is a famine. Um, like those sort of instruments, those sort of yes. safety measures have been in, uh, implemented throughout history. And then the question became, when could you start to transact those safety measures? Yes. When could you outsource the safety and someone says i will do the grain management and make sure that you are covered for your grain management and in return i ask for a barrel of wheat a year and yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff is is really how how the, the the industry came about so imagine an industry that's been going on since the time of the pharaohs mm-hmm. and then in the last 10 years um thanks to digitization um processes, ways of working, customer experiences that really haven't, haven't changed that much since the time of the pharaohs, um, have now had the opportunity to change massively. So the way that we buy insurance, the way that we consume insurance, the way that we claim on insurance is all being like completely revolutionized um, through, through um, slick apps, through APIs, through um, relationships and partnerships between insurance carriers and non-insurance companies. Um, it's a fascinating place to be and a really good example of the stuff that really gets me up in the morning, which is um, a category, a traditional category that's been completely revolutionized with technology and you know, reshaping the way that it operates and changing yeah. the way that customers experience the category. Um, and platform 195, how did that come about? Um, that's through some, um, actually the founder of platform 195 is an old friend from Hong Kong. Uh, we and we both came from Hong Kong to the UK about, um, about, about 12 years ago. And, um, he set up his, he's basically a cre- creative and media agency. Um, and, um, I've ended up sort of developing their research arm. Um, there's more to it as well. There's there's other organizations that I work with. Um, and I think I am in some ways probably, I, uh, um, I represent, or I, I feel like, and I'm proud to represent to a certain extent the future of work. In that I've got four jobs. What's the fourth? Ah, so I probably, um, I probably need to, to be a little bit cagey about that, but I actually... Essentially, I do. I, I, I work for one of the UK's major political parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm essentially the research manager for one of the UK's major political parties. Wow. Yeah, there's wow. a lot going on right now because in the UK we've got elections next month. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about about research for a second. Here is a uh, a bold stance for you. I'd like your thoughts on it. And I don't know if I where exactly I fall on it, but this is what I want to pose. Um, you're hearing rumblings in CX nowadays that the post-call survey is dead, that you can get those insights in other ways and asking your customers to complete a survey after the call is done 
is no longer the best way of gathering insights from your customers or treating your customers well. Now, I don't know if that's true. It's a bold stance, but I'm curious for your thoughts. So I think I mentioned about five minutes ago on the podcast that I don't believe in absolutes and I really don't believe in absolutes. There, there is a very limited number of absolutes that I truly believe in. I think, I think that everybody yeah. has the right to liberty and everybody has the right to um, to make their own choices about important things in their life. But other than that, I don't think that anything is right or wrong or anything is black and white, um, which some people find annoying and accuse me of sitting on the fence. But the, 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 the reality is it depends. The answer to, to many, many questions is it depends. Now, um, if, you want to, if you want to get likes on LinkedIn uh, or on Twitter, then Perfect you tend headline. to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, you know it, it probably works really well if you put out a really controversial and quite extreme point of view, such as uh, voice of customer surveys are dead. That will get you some attention. Uh, and that's why a lot of people say it because they, they're trying to get some attention. Um, are voice of customer surveys dead? No, no. Do they, do they have um, in, the, in the right context, used in the right way? Do they, do they bring value to organizations? Are they bringing value? to organizations all over the world today? Absolutely. Are other sources of data also valuable and are organizations also getting value from those today? Absolutely. There's never an either or, one is right and one is wrong. And I think anybody, I, I struggle to distinguish between people are saying stuff just to get the headlines and you know the clickbait versus people who truly believe it. I think, I honestly think a lot of people who are saying it, because they're smart, right? These people are smart. They're smart enough to know what will get their attention. And they're smart enough to, to not actually believe what they're saying. So no, voice to customer surveys are not dead. There are many use cases where voice to customer surveys bring value. And actually the smartest organizations overlay multiple sources of feedback. They don't rely on surveys alone they go to their behavioral data if you want to understand behaviors best thing to do is not ask people mm-hmm. so um unfortunately bad research tends to give all research a bad name bad surveys of which there are many tend to, to give all surveys a bad name a lot of uh, you know people on linkedin and twitter like to cite a bad survey and say oh i saw this terrible survey therefore all surveys are rubbish um, <laughs> so um Typically, if you want to ask, if you want to understand what's what's happening from a behavioral aspect, don't ask people because people don't know. Don't ask people to recall. Don't ask me how many times I ate McDonald's in the last two years because I can't tell you. <laughs> I used to run a survey and I'll, I'll, I'll hand on heart. I'm not proud of it. I'd like to say it was because the client forced me to, um, but I'm not going to completely pass the buck. I, I once worked for a client who made huge business decisions based on a survey that asked people to recall their last five vehicle fueling occasions. So let me ask you, Mark, can you remember the last five times that you fuel? Do you drive? I do. Can you remember the last five times that you fueled your vehicle? I can remember (laughs) the last one. (laughs) And so I please might tell be, me the yep. five fueling occasions ago. Where were you? Yeah. What did you do? How much fuel did you put in your car? What else did you do? Did you go into the shop? So can you imagine a survey that did all yeah. that? And can I can't you even tell you what state I was in. Exactly. Can you imagine <laughs> a, a, an organization that makes big decisions based on all of that? So that's not yeah. a great survey. That's not a great survey. And typically, when you're asking about what people, if you want to know what people did, don't ask them. 
go to your own data, go to your, you know, your transactional data. And of course, today with many yeah. organizations collecting so much digital data, they're sitting on all of that, that behavioral data. But what behavioral data does not tell you is why people do what they do yeah. or how they felt when they were doing it. And that's where the survey comes in. So the best organizations, the smartest organizations use a combination of all those data streams and they realize that there's still a role for the survey to get to the, the things that the behavioral data, the transactional data, the internal data doesn't yeah. give them. Stephen, I, I'm going to provide a, a story and almost make your point for you in some ways re refute it. Um, cause you know, you got me thinking about last time I bought gas and now I'm sitting here in my head thinking about the last gas station visit I was at. And I remember that I went up to the pump and, um, I wanted to buy regular fuel, but the only option was Supreme. And I kept, kept clicking regular, kept clicking regular. And then I, I thought I selected it and I start fueling and I noticed it's giving me Supreme gas. And I remember thinking, uh, like, oh, this is such crap like is they doing this intentionally are they just trying to and i saw my gas bill and i was like this is five bucks or ten bucks more than it normally is um the reason i tell that story is you know uh you're right there's no way i could go back five uh stories there's no way i can remember what happened five fuelings ago but if i were talking to that gas company I imagine that insight that I give them, which could be uh, attained through uh, a post-call survey, that insight would be really, really important. Yes. So um, I can I can see both sides of it of how um, you do need the qualitative bit. You need people to to tell you um, you know their perspective and narrative on, on questions that you have about your business, yeah. um, but at the same time, there's limits to that. Yes, there is. There is, however, um, in support of your original thesis, there is a problem. We have a problem in CX research, um, which is there's too much of it. The, um, and I think we all recognize this. People are over surveyed. People have survey fatigue. People are um I'd, I'd love to see a stat on this maybe actually I should, I should go away and try to find and create you know and do a bit of work myself to come i'd love to know how many how many surveys people get get invited to on an ongoing basis it seems now you can't do anything you can't transact with anybody without without being asked for your feedback there's one company in the uk that i won't name names but is particularly guilty of this um literally you'll do one small thing like check your account balance you'll get a you'll get a you know if i do that online you'll get a survey request online they'll then text me twice right they won't even give up after one go they'll, they'll text me twice to ask me how was my interaction today not surprisingly and this is the big dirty secret of the the research and voice of customer business response rates are through the floor now mm. response rates are not good are not good and the problem with that is when your response rates are are, are low that introduces a response bias because only a tiny proportion of people will respond to your surveys that means your survey results are only representative of a very tiny proportion of people the mm -hmm. talks of people who respond to surveys so that is a problem and i think um the one of the things that again i i 
I'm trying not to be disingenuous, Mark, because I am one of those people who who has worked in the voice of customer industry and has benefited in my career by being associated with the voice of customer industry. But one of, of the course. things that we've seen over the last 20 years is the rise of voice of customer software, software platforms, DIY platforms. It's really easy now for an organization to do their own customer surveys that they didn't even have to have any researchers. Anybody can, can, can get, a, get, a, get a piece of software and do, do a survey. Um, what that means is that um, there's, there's so many surveys, so many mm-hmm. surveys and um, it, it, it dismays me personally as a researcher to see many bad surveys done, not just bad questions, but done in inappropriate times, um, done without opting consent. Um, and we all see what's happening. We're all getting fed up of it. There, I'm on a Twitter feed called Bad Survey Questions. Um, there's, you know, there's a whole subculture now around um, sharing sort of, you know, r- funny examples of, of inappropriate surveys. Mm-hmm. There's a whole industry, seems to be a whole industry of people who, who love to bash NPS. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a whole thing now, you know, the backlash is real. Stephen, I think that one of the effects in research that is uh, totally underappreciated is um, the concept of training your respondents or training the market or training your customers. And what I mean by that is, you know, we you know, too often take the assumption that people are static and that somebody who you survey today would give the same response if they felt the same way four years from now. But, you know, talking about like your, the concept of low response rates, um, we have almost learned how to take a survey. We've started to reverse engineer as people what the survey takers are trying to get at and, you know, figured out that if you uh, get a zero to 10 question and you hit a, a zero, you're probably going to follow up question that says, well, what was bad about this? Like you, you kind of know as a customer that that's coming. So I think that also impacts uh, the efficacy of a lot of the research that's happening right now is, uh, you know, that the the research takers um, are adapting uh, to how we try to you know get information, and it's almost this like ongoing interplay between organizations wanting more information from their customers and customers trying to feel test the waters for what the right balance is for them of parting with their information. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you look at um, other fields, if you look at digital marketing, if you look at online marketing, um, the reality is is that the customer, the consumer is more sophisticated than the brand, right? And it's only a very small proportion of brands who who are, uh, who, are who can keep up with the customer who, you know, um, today's, you know, today's under 35 year old can see through sort of any sort of, you know, obvious clickbait type of campaign or can see right through, um, any, you know, an inauthentic campaign. That's why mm-hmm. achieving authenticity in marketing is so important now, um, because customers are savvy and they know it. And I think you're right. I think the same is true. Same is true of surveys and, um, I'm not impartial because I'm a professional researcher. Therefore, it's in my interest to advocate for professional researchers. But of course. I think one of the, I think DIY low cost research um, has brought many good things. It's, it's made insights available and customer feedback available to organizations that perhaps 
previously wouldn't have had it because they wouldn't have been able to afford um, professional insights. So it's democratized that and that's a good thing, but it's also, uh, how should I say, it's, it's created a lot of mediocre research. And I think what's happened is, as you say, customers have become wise to it. Um, gaming the system is a thing. Respond, low, lowering response rates is a thing. And um, it's incumbent on people like me to um, stay, you know, stay on top of that and stay, uh, to stay abreast of what customers are doing. And to, most importantly, to respect customers. Because mm-hmm. um, I think the, the, one of the characteristics of, brand, of bad research is not just that it's a, you know, it's a leading question or it's too long or it doesn't appear properly on your screen. It's that it's, it doesn't respect the customer's time. So much of voice of customer research is one way it asks you, it demands your time, it asks you things and it gives you nothing in return, it gives you nothing in return. And um, I think more and more, we need to respect the customer's time. We need to give some sort of exchange of value. And that could be as simple as actually just making the research fun, gamifying yep. it, gamifying it. So it's actually fun and that the customer doesn't feel like it's an imposition of their time uh, to do. So much of research is designed on the terms of the researcher and it's not designed on the customer's terms. So that's what the leading edge of research is now. It's actually making research not feel like research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost like the naturalistic observation that yeah. uh, if you uh, kind of think back to the 70s where you have um, a bunch of young folks in a room all drinking Coke, <laughs> you know, and just uh, tell me, what is the experience like? Uh, maybe, maybe we are due for a revival of that sort of research. Oh, it's absolutely um, happening. And you know, the best researchers, the best organizations are really pushing those frontiers. Um, but the, the vast majority of what we all see as customers isn't that. Right. And um, I think that's been one of the side effects of the democratization and the mainstreaming of, of customer surveys, unfortunately, because it's, you know, anybody can do a customer survey now. It doesn't take much. Uh, one of the, uh, I'll, I'll tell a quick story and then we got like, uh, the, the question that I always ask to, to round us out. Uh, a friend of mine was taking a survey the other day and he was saying that as he completed the survey, it got longer. So they, the, as he was completing the survey, they were adding <laughs> questions onto the survey. Oh my gosh. It's like Hotel California, right? You can never leave. Yeah. <laughs> never leave. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think, I, I mean, I, I, I recognize that I'm guilty of it. You know, <laughs> you design, you design these surveys and your friend was probably quite interesting, right? He probably had, you know, some interesting characteristics. So he ticked that box. Therefore we need yep. to probe that because he was one of the few people who ticked that box. So, Hey, let's ask him a few more questions. Yeah. Yes. It's that's hilarious. That's so fun. <laughs> But yes, I, I, I'm guilty of that. I'm afraid I've written questionnaires like that. Uh, Stephen, what is your picture in your mind of what the contact center and the CX world of 2030 will look like? Uh, well, I'm not going to say it's going to be 2030, but I'll give, uh, I'll try to paint a picture of a future, which is not too far away, whether it's 2030 or 2035, I couldn't say. I think that organizations will be far more responsive to the customer than they are today. By responsive, I mean um, offering the customer's choice of interaction channel. 
So that's already a thing, omnichannel. You know, everybody talks about omnichannel, but that will become much more of a reality in the future. I think you know we're, we're starting to see it become a reality today, but it's only in a very small minority of situations and with organizations where you have a really truly omnichannel experience where actually I can and by, by that, I don't just mean the channel that I that I choose, but I can actually switch channels. I can hop channels. I can pick up the phone, have a conversation, and then I can go onto the web chat. And um, everything that I've talked about on that phone conversation is is there in the web chat. And then I can go back to the chatbot, and the chatbot knows exactly what's happened in every conversation before that. And it's all done in a very automated and very seamless way. Um, at, you know, on the customer's terms. So, um, I, you know, and I, and, and I think. Responsiveness is also about predictiveness. So analytics will increasingly predict what I want before I even, I don't have to tell you what I want. You'll know what I want based on the analytics because you'll have all, all this data about not just from me, but people like me. You'll know exactly what I want. You'll know how, how, how I like to be talked to, through which channel, using what language, through which tonality. You'll know if I'm one of those people who just likes to talk. Um, it might not seem like it because I've just spoken to you for an hour, Mark, but I'm actually quite a sort of a, not a talker. And particularly when I'm, you know, when I'm in customer service situations, don't ask me how my day has been. Just get to the point. Give me what I need. Don't, 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 you know, have a, you know, the shorter and the more succinct and to the point, the conversation, the better. That's me. Now, you, Mark, might actually like, love to, you know, you might, oh God, the game yesterday, man, you know. The, I'm a handle the, the, time. The Cardinals, <laughs> the Cardinals, you know, what, what, what are they playing at, right? You know, you might, you might like to have that bit of banter at the start of your call. And therefore, the, whether it's a bot or whether it's a human on the other side, will give you that. They'll have that conversation with you. Whereas Stephen calls, oh, don't talk about the Cardinals. Stephen just wants to get to the point. Um, and further to that, we're starting to see that, of course, now with, with organizations like Amazon. You'll know what I want to buy. You'll know why I'm calling. You'll know what I'm expecting even before, you know, I don't have to tell you. You'll know what I'm expecting. So I think that we're only starting to really understand the power of predictive analytics. We're only starting to, to see the power of what, data can bring to the experience both both in contact centers and the wider customer experience i think there will be coming back to the contact center there'll be uh contact center careers will feel much more aspirational than they are now you know it's 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 true right not just in in, in the uk but in the us everywhere in the world no one no one grows up thinking i want to work in a contact center you tell people you're working in a contact center and people are like, oh, okay, when are you going to get a real job, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a real career, but it will because the fact is that the skills you need to work in a contact center are, are genuine, proper skills. You need, you, need, you need to know the organization. You need to know about its products. You need to know about its services. You need to know who to talk to you know, to answer the customer's question. You need, you need to think on your feet you need to be good with people. You need to have great communication skills. You need to have soft skills, hard skills, people skills, um, product skills, you know, they're, they're proper skills, right? Um, and skills that actually will set you up in other jobs, you know, for other careers, other, you know, later on. I think we'll start to see contact centers becoming more desirable uh, as places to work and people will take them more seriously. 
as careers. And I think we'll start to see, and we are already starting to see, and then this comes back full circle to a point you made at the beginning of the, of, of the discussion, Mark. I think contact centers aren't just sort of, you know, a function that sits there on the side. It's kind of downstream operations. It's, it's front and center. It, the contact center is in many ways, the nerve center of every organization. The contact center is where the front line happens. It's where it's the primary interface between an organization and its customers and its stakeholders. It's more and more defines the experience that the customer has of an organization more than any other touch point, I would say. Um, and think about all that data that you're collecting as organizations start to wake up to and understand the power and the value of data, I think contact centers will become elevated because nowhere else do you get so much data than you do in the contact center. Steven, this was fun. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. The fun was all mine. <laughs> uh, next time. Talk to you soon, my friend. And you take care now. See ya. Bye-bye.